Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, our first program of 2019 after the holiday period of highlights from 2018. I'm David Brown and in this week's news stories we learn of drivers may have big issues if there is a no-deal Brexit in the UK. And a road safety seminar says that 44% of road crashes occur in the Asia-Pacific region. We discuss why the world's worst bus stop is a lesson to us all. We road test the Kia Picanto GT. And Brian Smith, Errol Smith and I discuss a range of quirky topics, including autonomous vehicles that display the direction they are going in to other drivers and the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. You wouldn't drive it if they paid you, or would you? You can find information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or we have our new Facebook site called Overdrive City. But let's get started with the news. Motoring and insurance organisations have warned that UK drivers will suffer more inconvenience if there is a no-deal Brexit. The main feature will be that they have to get an international driving permit if there is no deal, but the complexity does not stop there. If you are travelling to Ireland, Malta, Spain or Cyprus, you may require a 1949 convention driving permit, which is valid for 12 months. If you are travelling to all other EU states, you may require a 1968 permit. The 1968 convention is valid for three years or for however long your driver's licence is valid if that date is earlier. A 1926 permit is not required in any EU state, however, it is required if you plan to drive in Mexico or Somali. From February 2019, the Motoring Club, the RAC, will no longer issue international driving permits, but rather you will have to go to a post office. Separately, the Association of British Insurers said drivers will need to obtain a green card proof of insurance in the event of no deal if they wish to drive their vehicle in the EU. We often think that America has a lot of car crashes because they're rich and have many cars. Or we may think that there are a lot of road crashes in Africa because the road system is very poor, particularly for pedestrians. But a seminar organised by the Department of Sociology, Quaid-i-Azam University, in collaboration with the Higher Education Commission of Pakistan, said that the figures were most alarming for the Asia-Pacific region. Despite Asia-Pacific having only 16% of overall vehicles in the world, they accounted for 44% of total crashes. Dr Mohammed Zamir identified several important gaps in legislation. He's quoted as saying only two convictions relating to road accidents have been found in the history of Pakistan. It means no one in the country is interested in the importance of road safety. He proposed a number of things, including reform the weak penalty system, devise a conviction law in case of fatalities, and formulate a child restraint law. 
He also said there was a need for a better public transport system and 40% of automated signals in Pakistan are out of order. McLaren's Applied Technologies division has come out with its vision of what a Formula One car might be like in 2050. Firstly, the body will adapt its shape to suit different parts of the circuit in a quest for more efficiency. The side pods will expand and contract like the gills of a shark, which will help the cars achieve a top speed of up to 480 kilometres an hour. Currently, they hit about 340 kilometres an hour top speed. Yet the vehicles will still have very high stability and grip in braking zones and in corners. This could all come about with none of the wings and things on the top of cars, but rather through sculpted floor pans under the car and diffusers. The cars will be, of course, all electric. The tracks and more so the pits could recharge the cars, although McLaren has even suggested that one car may be able to steal energy from another. The tyres could feature inductive charging coils and the ability to repair themselves. McLaren foresees different coloured lights to represent the driver's emotions to show the fans and different colours in the driver's cabin to show the fans' appreciation or not of what they're doing. Drivers themselves are unlikely to need much human expertise as artificial intelligence will be a major part of the car's operations. The system could learn and predict the track situation, but also the driver's state of mind and set out a strategy accordingly. But McLaren is proposing blackout zones during the race where all the artificial intelligence and tech will be turned off. And while on the subject of Formula One, we know that it is expensive, but even getting an entry to compete is exorbitant. According to a report from motorsport.com, the minimum cost for a team to compete in 2019 will be three quarters of a million Australian dollars. And it doesn't stop there. Each team will have to pay a levy of $7,500 for each point they scored in 2018. In fact, Mercedes, who won the Constructors' Championship last year, their levy will be $9,000 per championship point. In total, Mercedes will have to pay $6.6 million just to enter this year's championship, while Ferrari will pay $5 million and Red Bull $3.9 million. Williams had a terrible year in 2018, so they have to only pay just over $800,000. The Packard Car Company started in America in 1899, in 1903, they opened their manufacturing plant on a 40-acre site on the East Grand Boulevard on the city's east side. They built luxury cars at this site till 1956, and although the company would continue to manufacture cars in South Bend, Indiana, until 1958, the final model produced on June 25, 1956, is considered the last true Packard. Part of the site was a famous bridge over East Grand Boulevard. In the last week of January 2019, the bridge finally collapsed, perhaps a symbol of the state of America's car industry in general. For years, the grand old days of America's dominance in car building was fondly remembered, but for the last few decades it has been somewhat of a cover-up. In fact, the bridge, 
that became covered in graffiti was covered in 2018 with a graphic print of what the bridge looked like at its peak. And that has been the news. Well, that's been the news. Now, let's talk about a subject that has a rather serious bent to it, and then we'll go on to the more unusual but when, and a road test as well. And to help me do all that discussion, I have on the line Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Brian, this is a subject I think is close to your heart. Would you lead us through that? It's about bus stops and really bad bus stops. I saw an article uh, last week just highlighting that the worst bus stop in North America just got a makeover, not an improvement, really, just a makeover. So just uh, picture this. This is in uh, Canada, and TransLink bus stop 61452 is on the Lockheed Highway, westbound Lockheed Highway. And basically, um, there's the motorway, the highway. Then there is a breakdown lane and a set of barriers, concrete barriers, right? And the bus stop is actually the bus pulls up against the concrete barrier. If you're a customer waiting there, all there is is a sign. You have to climb over or had to climb over the concrete barrier to get in the bus. And you either waited basically on the road side of the barrier, so potentially getting struck by cars driving along at, at uh, 100 kilometres an hour, or you waited the other side of the barrier to be safe and then scrambled across when the bus came. Such a shocking arrangement. Now, the improvements that they made was they took the section of barrier at the bus stop and turned it into a fence. So you still have the <laughs> options of, of standing inside the fence or outside the fence, but at least you can see through it now. So it's just a, a crazy idea. And, and I would I think agree, I've, I don't think I've seen a worse bus stop and i've seen some some pretty bad ones uh in australia and elsewhere did it have disability ramps no anyone with any kind of mobility impairments would be stuffed hasn't even got shelter so it's just it, if you can imagine it it's just a, a high-speed highway with a stick and a and a bus stop sign <laughs> but it, it highlights for me just how unpleasant or how unpractical it is, impractical, to have a bus stop on a motorway, on a highway, because yeah. highways are really about limiting access. So you control access by ramps and things like that. You have fences and things. You don't allow people to, to develop buildings or houses along a highway that open onto it. It's really about separating the traffic movement from everything else, including the, the place. Now, we, we all know mm. that, or we should know that, that uh, there's a concept called movement and place, which is uh, quite big in the transport planning industry at the moment. It sort of says a road has two functions. It has a, a movement function, moving people and goods, and it has a place function in that it supports access to houses and shops and stuff like that. So highway is all about movement and nothing to do about place. So bus stops should not be, or bus routes that pick up people should not be on highways. Yeah, now, this is a highway, a, a rural highway or an urban highway? So this is a rural highway, but it's quite urban in its setting. So yeah. so the design in, in is very much, you know, it's, it's a separated highway with barriers to stop people running off the road or running beyond the shoulder. There's three lanes for, vehicle, for regular vehicles in each direction and a dedicated bus lane. And I've got a, a picture here of a very sorry passenger in what looks like a very dangerous spot. There's a ditch. There's a ditch yeah, behind it. It's, it's, it's a ditch. And, and the other thing you don't expect to happen on a highway like this is vehicles stopping. 
Mm. You know, normally yes. when a vehicle's stopped, that's because they've broken down or there's an accident. That's the thing you want to avoid on, on this kind of road. Or particularly, you don't want them having to start out from zero. Mm. Yes. Unless yeah. they've got a very long lane to merge into. Brian, do you think this might push us towards rethinking what those whole corridors should be? We talk about having these road corridors. Perhaps urban is and rural is a little different, but let's take the urban, where we want to do 100k an hour, but that is meaningless, really, particularly when it gets congested. And secondly, it's a free-for-all. If we wanted to have corridors that make things work, we can have this free-for-all, this is the vision at the moment, or we can have a railed system which is very fixed as one comedian once said a tram is a bus without options i'm not condemning them and i know you and i have some debates about that but the point being is that maybe we need to rethink the corridor completely and uh, it's not yeah. going to be a case of a free-for-all and while you may find that disadvantages the decadent joy of private motoring it enhances the possibility of using it for transit how how do you think we might design it brian to use it for transit well so david for a start transit you know serves people and so you have to have transit where people are rather than transit where vehicles go so it's not really about putting transit on movement corridors. It's about connecting places and, and serving places along the way. So so in this case, really, the bus should be on a different road. I can't see there's any benefit from having a stop on a highway. And in, and in fact, I'm interested in the whole process about approving a bus stop here because no thought was given to people in this thing. It was really just mm. somebody, there's a line with a, you know, buses running along this route and, and let's place a stop at a particular spacing. So I think uh, the federal government recently released a, a document called The Whole Journey Guide, and it's about thinking about bus stops and other things like this in public transport from the perspective of a person's journey. So not just getting on the bus or, or getting off the bus, but how do you get to that stop and, and what's at the stop when you get there and, and does it meet your needs? And so it's very easy to, to just say, well, I'm going to comply with, with a guideline but it can be basically inaccessible. So for a start here, really, the, the, the bus could pull co completely off the highway and go through some more urban people-oriented streets because it, for anyone who's getting off at this stop who then has to scramble over the barrier, where are they going to? And so that's really about taking people where they want to go, not making them come to where the where the corridor is. Or even having a link to it that might be appropriate, because there is a role for transit over a sort of arterial trip, isn't there? A, a, you know, a commute that might be more than 10Ks. But you also don't like the idea that they have in Perth where they have a railway down the middle of two traffic flows, one each way, for cars. Some people say it yes. looks great because you can see how fast the train's going or not, but you don't like that, do you, Brian? Well, no, and because it, it, the, the highway, in a sense, the, you know, the rail tracks are in the, the middle of a big motorway corridor, and, and that corridor separates people from that people-focused service. Mm. So there's no way to create any kind of, of development around the stations along that line because the people are kind of 300 metres away mm. and, and there's, there's no ability to create the sort of intimate spaces and places that we associate it with rail stations, say, in Sydney. If you can imagine 
you know, uh, your local railway station, that the things have developed around and, you you know, you, there are shops, there's, there's people living around there. Um, that's not possible where you've got uh, a rail line running down a, a motorway. They, they are really, uh, they are severing communities rather than serving them. Even Brisbane's busway network, which runs in a motorway, that has some similar problems. It's, it's not really in the middle of the motorway, but still the motorway creates a sort of a sterilised space, mm. which is really counter to, to the mm. kind of benefits that it, transit access provide. It's almost like the, the freeway is a no-man's land that nobody's, you know, you can't cross. Exactly. For fear, for Even, fear of death, not, not unlike yeah. a real no-man's land. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sydney has uh, the M2 busway. So the M2 motorway for a section of it has a median busway with stations and you have to sort of go past under or over the motorway and come down to that bus station in the middle. Now, you you sort of live in that area, David, and I'm sure you've used those buses. It's just not a pleasant place to no. to wait with the noise of traffic and the fumes and the just it's it's an awful place to yeah, place and, there's, a bus and there's, on. there's nothing suburban about the experience. It's it's basically you get on that bus because you want to go to the to the CBD. I've also got to say it's very hot in a recent hot temperature. Sitting out there is very hot. Now, gentlemen, do you think then rather than catching the bus, I might drive a GT? <laughs> For a grand turismo. I've been driving two GTs. The first is a Picanto GT. Anyone who knows Kia products will know that this is the smallest, the tiniest little car that they have on the market. And they have made a GT for this particular car. Can I just give you a little bit of background? Three years ago, they brought out the first Picanto into the micro market, which was dying a natural death. They had cars in that market, not Kia, other brands, which gave you the feel and the response that you thought that you were driving a car you could afford rather than you wanted, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I, I do. I, I vaguely remember driving the Picanto perhaps a year ago, and it's a very, very, very small car, and it's very simple. And there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it because you know what you're getting. But it's never a car I would have pictured as a grand tourer. The thing that you you cover great distances in in comfort and power. I, I can see the attraction of a hot hatch, and some people like this stuff. But hmm. but even uh, what's the GT is what less than two thousand dollars more than the standard, isn't it? Like yes, that's right. It can't be much, right? Let me throw in a couple of things. Uh, if you remember, of course, the Mini and the Mini Cooper S. Cooper S wasn't called the GT till later. It was called Clubman when it had faded <laughs> yeah. out of being yeah. anything. And a GT is typically the squire, uh, uh, Rose, uh, touring through the countryside on his way to his holiday castle in his Bentley. That's how grand touring came about. But now it's being used all over the place, including I was driving a family ute the other day that had a GT version, and I can assure you it wasn't a grand tourer by any means. Well, I love the, the idea that the Picanto's got the most tiny boot, that, that you know, you, you really, all you can throw in is the hand luggage, isn't it? Yes, it is, but you can fold down the rear seats and you can get good driving position in it. So really, and you know what? It's boom that market. That market segment has grown last year by 9% when the general sedan market has declined by 16%. 
Now, when they brought it onto the market three years ago, the Picanto, the Kia, it was their old version, but they rushed it on because they wanted to get their foot in the door, and it had what I might call a rather wheezy transmission and engine layout, a 1.25 litre and a four, four-speed automatic. If you pulled out from a side road on a rural highway onto a main road, before you had accelerated up to the speed limit, you had time to recite the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and I think you might have wanted to. It's clear, Look, it's a city car and it's boomed, but now they've got this little thing. It's a little bit of a uh, sporty one. It's a one litre. It's a smaller engine. It's only three cylinders, but it's turboed. And it's got 19% more power and 41% more torque. So it pulls rather well, and it's a manual, which is good, but it's not sort of thump in the back. Yes. This is not the 205 GTI of 2019, is it? No, it's not. No. No. And it isn't if you look at the specs either. It's heavier and it's got less power than it, the 205 GTI from the uh, from the 80s. Oh, yes. It's not a hot hatch. It's just something now that's a little more drivable. And by the way, in 2017, they had 40% of the market. In 2018, they had 69% of that market share, that segment. So they must be doing something right. There is another GT, but we've run out of time really to talk about that because, gentlemen, I want to talk about a little bit of uh, quirky news that we have on our Facebook site, Overdrive City. Brian, you uh, have a story for us. So, David, everyone's trying to work out how to make autonomous vehicles work, particularly autonomous cars, self-driving cars. Everyone's trying to work out how do we make them safe, how do we communicate, particularly in a, a setting where there might be some autonomous vehicles and some being driven by people. Well, Jaguar Land Rover has developed a, a system that projects the direction of the vehicle's travel onto the road ahead of these self-driving vehicles. So the idea is it tells other road users what it's about to do next. I guess it's going to have an arrow or, a, or a, um, you know, I don't know, uh, stop stop and uh, pick up a burger or something like that. But the idea here is that um, is to, to tell people what they might expect to this vehicle to do uh, as a way of trying to improve this idea of safety with autonomous vehicles. Strikes me, though, David, I'd also like it, to be projected onto the road behind. So if I'm driving behind that vehicle, I have an idea of what it's about to do. Well, they do that with bicycles, don't they? There was the notion that if a vehicle could detect a bicycle, they would project that, say, to, to a bus driver in the lane of the bicycle, like just but just ahead of where the bus driver is looking, where he is looking, so that he could see that they're is something behind you know next to him that he might not see in his rear vision mirror, but it's mm. projecting on there. I like that idea. I think that's clever. But David, what's the difference between having indicators and brake lights and a reversing light? Surely those things communicate to everybody what the vehicle's about to do, and and they're familiar rather than projecting mm. onto a road that that may or may not provide visibility or in mm. different conditions may not actually be effective. Brian, I think you're missing the point here. I mean, the stereotypical driver of a luxury vehicle like a Jaguar uh, doesn't use their indicators anyway. <laughs> so it's really the modern equivalent of, of that. Ah, so what they project onto the road is like a royal carriage about to move into your lane because they've got the right to do it. Is that yeah. see, see, you asked, what is the image? Well, we told you what we're about to do. Yes. It's your fault if you crashed into it. A battering ram. 
That's the image <laughs> that we should put push onto the road. A giant extended finger. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I do like the idea, though, of the car showing not, j- but also the driver, particularly if it's going to be autonomous, that it actually does see around it. The Tesla has on the screen in front of the driver a picture of the car it's detected in front, not a, only a schematic drawing. I would like to have a, a full picture that says, yes, I know it's a bus or I know it's yes, something else. Yeah, something else. Yeah. Or mm. it's incredibly mm. big and incredibly close. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, uh, will, will it project a blue screen onto the road when the onboard computer <laughs> inevitably crashes? Uh, Errol, talking about driving unusual vehicles, you have a story? Yes, well, David, if you've never heard of the Wynamobile, let me describe it to you. It's a hideously ugly small bus made of fiberglass that's made in the shape of a giant hot dog and in bright orange and yellow. Now, you might say, you couldn't pay me to drive that, but you'd be wrong because that's exactly what Oscar Mayer, the Oscar Mayer Hot Dog Company, is willing to do. They are going to pay an ambassador, as they refer to them, to drive this hideous contraption all around the US promoting the brand. Apparently, you'll relish the oh. opportunity. Oh! Oh! <laughs> <Ouch>. oh. <laughs> I wonder what should be the criteria for the driver. I think it should be counter to everything that the weenie burger might give you, or the wieners may give you, and that is the driver should be athletic. (laughs) Perhaps they should be young. You know, I seem to think of wieners as being sort of a bit old hat hat and that, although they shouldn't be a rev or maybe they should. If they chuck wheelies, would that give a credibility to the youth of today? Maybe. I, I, I love the idea of the hot dog driver sort of uh, pulling up and then taking like five minutes to get out panting and <laughs> having to stop halfway and sort of wiping his forehead. <gasps> 200 kilos, try to get out. <laughs> Come around, children. <laughs> Gather around. He'll be covered in tomato sauce and it'll look like he's just been injured. And mustard. <laughs> That's true. Emergency services might have to come. No, no, it's mustard and and tomato (laughs) sauce. Gentlemen, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and I appreciate your time greatly, and uh, we'll catch up again next week. Goodbye, David. Bye-bye, David. And that was Errol Smith and Brian Smith, and uh, this has been Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. We really appreciate the efforts of Brian Smith, Errol Smith and Paul Just in helping this program get to air. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify and we have a Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.